Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme. We're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And as we tell you every week, that is education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's publicly accessible to every child. Doesn't matter what their background or their preferences of their parents may be. And uh, as well as that, it should be public in ownership and control because it is that way going to be public in accountability because it has to be publicly funded with our taxes and we have to keep an eye on it. Now, we've got quite a full program this afternoon. We're going to talk about TAFE because Mr Morrison's talking about TAFE. We're also going to talk about booming enrolment figures in our public schools. We need a lot more schools than are being built. And um, we're also going to talk about how uh, in the crisis, the pandemic crisis, there have been profiteers profiting from the crisis. Oliver's going to talk to us about that. As well as that, over the years, there has been issues in education which they keep bringing up. The uh, conservatives in our society tend to want to argue that more school funding doesn't improve matters at all. In fact, there is just so much research to the contrary. So Dale's going to tell us about that. And then Ms Plibersek, the Shadow Education Minister, Minister in Canberra, has been talking about what might happen if the uh, Labor Party gets to power after the pandemic. And we're going to find out from uh, the various young people here assembled uh, a criticism by Chris Bonner about that. That's if we've got enough time. So first of all, our press release 882. We have a press release, or we try to every week, this is for the 13th of March, 2021. It's headed TAFE. Morrison needs to put his money where his mouth is. Prime Minister Morrison is trumpeting economic recovery plans that are based on a 1.2 billion wage subsidy for apprentices and also skilled migration proposals. We haven't got enough skilled tradesmen in this country and we seem to have to import them. But uh, there's a problem in times of pandemic with imported skills. So with immigration stalled and high levels of underemployment and unemployment, Mr Morrison's expansion of the apprentice wage subsidy scheme will take to $5.2 billion the amount spent on apprentices since the pandemic took hold a year ago. I'm not sure how uh, the um, age, I think it is, and the Sydney Morning Herald have worked this out, but um, they are claiming that they have spent $5.2 billion on skilled, the skilling of our apprentices since uh, the beginning of the pandemic. In three separate instalments since March last year, the government has already committed $4 billion towards subsidising the wages of up to 280,000 apprentices and trainees. But learning on the job is not enough. Usually apprentices have also got to go to 
a tertiary institution to learn new trade. Uh, this last instalment in the October budget was 1.2 billion and was committed to pay only half the wages of 100,000 apprentices for a year, capped at $7,000 a quarter. Morrison is, however, merely playing catch up and is pouring money into an inefficient, corrupt and failing privatised system of profiteering tertiary institutions. Uh, some time ago, the dogs indicated how this, in fact, was a $19 billion scandal. The growth of this sector has paralleled the gutting of the Australian manufacturing sector, first by the Hawke-Keating Labor government in the 1980s, and later the Howard and Abbott coalition government since the 1980s, in more recent times. And Morrison is just following on from Abbott and Turnbull. Now, Morrison's merely recognising the inevitable. Australia is facing a skills crisis, and it's more than time that both the federal and the state governments put their money where it's needed, in our public type sector. Now, the AEU is also aware of this, and Maddie is going to read to us uh, what the AEU has got to say about the needs of our public TAFE sector. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you, Jean. The AEU is correct when its president, Corinna Haythorpe, says that the federal government must rebuild with TAFE if a positive future is going to be created for all young tradespeople. The following is an excerpt from the AEU press release of the 17th of February, 2021. The Australian Education Union, AEU, is calling on governments across the country to make TAFE their first priority as Australia looks to rebuild from the COVID-19 pandemic and tackle the country's skills crisis. The AEU launched the Rebuild with TAFE campaign in Canberra today and used the launch to call on governments to properly fund TAFE and maximise the system's potential to assist <clears throat> with the economic rebuild, reskill and upskill workers address the apprentice shortage, reduce youth unemployment and provide career pathways for all Australians. AEU Federal President Corinna Haythorpe said that the TAFE system is a hugely valuable asset that is being neglected by the federal government and many state governments. We're launching the Rebuild with TAFE campaign because we're sick of governments and politicians putting TAFE last and letting a critical part of Australia's economy and education sector waste away. The federal government has cut $3 billion in funding from vocational education since 2013 and pursued a relentless privatisation agenda, increasing the amount of low-quality private training providers at great cost to TAFE. All over Australia, TAFE institutes are struggling with the impact of these funding cuts and poor policy decisions resulting in the loss of jobs and cutting of courses. This is disastrous for the communities they support and must be addressed urgently. Australia is facing many challenges due to the COVID-19 pandemic and as the public provider of vocational education, TAFE is best placed to address those challenges if it is properly funded and supported. 
Australia currently has a shortage of 200,000 apprentices, while at the same time we also have plenty of Australians who are out of work. Rebuilding with TAFE will help our unemployed to retrain, upskill or get an apprenticeship and gain meaningful employment. The National Cabinet itself has determined that skills is one of the six key priorities for the government, yet the federal government won't properly fund the public provider of vocational education. That doesn't make any sense. TAFER is responsible for $92.5 billion per year in annual economic benefit to Australia, 16 times more than the annual cost to maintain the provider, but these long-standing and ongoing benefits will be permanently lost if governments fail to rebuild with TAFE. A 2020 national survey found that 94% of Australians want to see more federal funding for TAFE, and research has consistently found that Australians see TAFE as a vital part of Australia's education sector that can provide career, social and economic opportunities for people from a wide range of backgrounds. Proper funding for TAFE will increase available courses, increase the number of campuses and ensure high quality vocational education that will improve the lives of millions of Australians. Australians trust and support TAFE and know the system can help rebuild our economy. But we need our governments and politicians to show that same support by investing in TAFE to rebuild Australia socially and economically. TAFE touches so many aspects of our society and economy from the arts and fashion to construction, health and early childhood education to opportunities for young people in rural and regional areas, and we cannot afford to lose it. As we head to the next federal election, all political parties must commit to rebuilding with TAFE and will be campaigning to make sure they understand how important this issue is to our communities. Well, thank you very much, uh, Maddie. Uh, the dogs subscribe to the importance of public education from birth to the grave. Absolutely. And the TAFE sector is an essential part of that public provision of education. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now, we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda, and race hatred indoctrination. Now, it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is, and we fight for it every day, and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. 
generally like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire. And this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program. I hope you're still with us because we've got a lot more interesting material. And Sol is going to talk to us about the booming enrolment figures which show an urgent need for more capital funding for public schools. Over to you, Sol. Thank you, Jean. So I will be talking about the booming enrolment figures showing urgent need for more capital funding for public schools. New school enrolment figures have provided further evidence of the growing demand for public education and of the deep inequality entrenched in the distribution of capital funds across Australia's education system. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, public schools enrolled 34,313 additional students in 2020, compared to the 8,886 more students in Catholic schools and 14,964 more students in private schools. There are now over 2.6 million students enrolled in public schools in Australia. Public schools already teach two-thirds of all students, Yet over the five years from 2016, public school enrolments rose by 5.9% compared to those of the next largest sector, Catholic schools, where enrolments grew by 1.5%. Despite these figures, the federal government has given Catholic and private schools a $1.9 billion capital works special deal while providing no equivalent federal funding to public schools to build and maintain essential school infrastructure. AEU Federal President Corina Haythorpe said that booming public school enrolments demonstrated the urgent need for the federal government to provide capital funding for public schools to cater for the growth in student numbers. Public school enrolments continue to skyrocket, yet public schools get no federal funding to build and maintain essential school infrastructure. Instead, the federal government has handed private schools a $1.9 billion capital works special deal, Ms. Haythorpe said. Two-thirds of Australia's school students attend public schools, and this proportion is growing. More parents than ever before are sending their kids to public schools, creating a need for more buildings, more classrooms, and improved infrastructures, such as libraries, sporting facilities, and science labs. Yet the question must be asked, why is the federal government ignoring public schools? where the need is clearly greatest and instead funneling billions of dollars into private infrastructure, Ms. Haythorpe said. Ms. Haythorpe said that in May's federal budget, the Commonwealth must establish a capital works fund for public schools. If the Morrison government wants to give all school students a fair go, it must immediately end capital funding inequality and provide funding to public schools for the capital works necessary to meet growing enrolments, Ms. Haythorpe said. All right, you're listening to The Dogs, and thank you. We'll be back after this break. 
councils around the country will put on (laughs) Disability Day events and quite a few of them will not include people of colour, First Nations people and black people. So I think it's pretty cool that everyone you'll hear on here today will be a person of colour and the majority of them will be people with disabilities as well. I think when we were preparing for this show and for this day, we wanted to talk about how we could explain the concept of power from the margins and why it is that we've chosen to focus on black people, indigenous people and people of colour. And I think in, a, in one word, it's intersectionality. It's the fact that people experience forms of oppression, different forms of oppression at the same time. And most people don't realise that you can't have racial justice without disability justice and vice versa. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Welcome back to The Dogs on 3CR. And now we have an article for you, Profiting from a Crisis, pulled from The Australian Educator. The global shutdown of schools in early 2020 rattled education systems and provided a host of new opportunities for the commercial education technology sector to profit. Private and commercial organisations, often operating in coalitions with organisations such as the World Bank, OECD and UNESCO, have expanded their reach as education service providers. Public education was already becoming dependent on the private technology infrastructure of global conglomerates such as Microsoft, Google and Amazon, says Dr Anna Hogan, a senior lecturer in education at the University of Queensland. The pandemic just accelerated that. It is a rate of change that was unimaginable just a year ago, says Education International President and AEU Federal Secretary, Susan Hockford. To these edu businesses, our students are gold they can mine by inveigling their way into public education systems. While we all recognize public education as a fundamental public good and key driver of a prosperous future, these organizations see it as a source of profit, Hockford says data collection concerns. There are also questions about how the pandemic heightened data collection and use, especially in a future hybridized of further hybridized education models. The edtech sector is pouring billions of dollars into the development of a personalized learning informed by artificial intelligence that can determine a student's weaknesses and give a teacher feedback on how to direct their learning, says Hogan. With AI informed technology, Schooling could get to the point where teachers aren't necessarily interpreting the curriculum, setting the lessons or delivering the assessments themselves. 
It's all embedded within these programs. We need to ask who designs these algorithms and what sort of expertise they have. Further, we need to recognize the limitations of the data being collected and interpreted through these programs. Could I interrupt there just to say that in England there's been an uproar because algorithms have actually evaluated young people as to whether or not they are going to go to university. Mm. And um, there's been a lot of anguish in a lot of homes about this. These algorithms, um, are, they seem to be getting a life of their own and our students, our children, are at their behest. It's a really worrying situation that Oliver's talking about here. It is. There's only so much a computer program can glean from information it's gathered. Um, what it doesn't get is the emotional data that the teachers come across every day in the classroom with face-to-face lessons. That can't be gauged by a computer program. Yes, the... Um, the actual story about what's happening in England can be read in the Guardian Weekly. It's, um, the Guardian, particularly the UK Guardian, is dealing with this problem. But um, I thought that people would be interested to hear about it because uh, it's already happening overseas and what happens overseas usually echoes in Australia fairly soon afterwards. I'd say that anguish is very understandable. If you ask any teacher what's the most valuable learning experience they do in their classroom, it's often the things you can't test or generate data on, says Hogan. COVID-19 has provided a catalytic opportunity for educational transformation, according to a research paper commissioned by Educational International. This paper, Commercialization and Privatization in of Education in the Context of COVID-19, was co-authored by Hogan with Ben Williamson from the University of Edinburgh. Hogan and Williamson were astounded by the extent of offerings from individual companies, but even more surprised by the contribution of the OECD, UNESCO, and the World Bank. Given their global influence, they're able to assemble multi-sector coalitions teaming up with big edtech companies such as Google and Microsoft. They are setting agendas and telling governments how to respond to the pandemic, says Hogan. And when the World Bank says edtech solutions from these companies are the best way to deal with the pandemic. That's often what gets picked up and enacted globally, a surge in demand. Because edtech companies have been active in online education for a decade or more, many schools were already using commercial student management systems and learning platforms. To work remotely, Hogan says they they simply upscaled with plugins such as Zoom, Microsoft Teams, or OneNote for face-to-face meetings. But there were also schools with no experience in handling remote and online learning systems. They were happy to take whatever platform they could use for free and make it work for a limited period of time, says Hogan. The result was an unbelievable surge in demand for products from commercial edtech companies, particularly the cloud-based solutions and learning management platforms that allow schools and teachers to transition learning from physical to online spaces, says Hogan. A lot of these products and services were initially free of charge for schools and individuals, but required users to register and create accounts, presumably capturing customers and their data data well beyond the life of the pandemic. TikTok, the video sharing app owned by a Chinese company ByteDance, is another new player in the edtech sector. TikTok has been banned in the US, while Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has warned users to be wary of the app's connection with China. ByteDance, 
created Learn on TikTok, a range of educational videos embedded with ads. They're making a huge profit advertising straight to students as they're getting this bite-sized curriculum content, says Hogan. Finding a happy medium. There's no doubt edtech products and services help schools provide learning during the pandemic crisis, but the long-term consequences are difficult to predict. It's hard to put the genie back in the bottle, says Hogan. She expects more hybridized forms of education delivery, but believes we will gradually return to business as usual. Schools are suggesting that's the case. They've used these products for a period and say it's great to know that they'll be able to do that again, but they're returning to face-to-face -face learning with the teacher designing the curriculum and implementing whatever pedagogies suit them. A new digital divide. The pandemic highlighted ongoing concerns about children without access to computer technology and the internet, establishing big gaps in accessibility and equity. Hogan wonders whether in 10 years time, the gap will be between students who get to attend a bricks and mortar institution with face-to-face -face instruction and social and extracurricular opportunities and those forced into online education because their families can't afford to send them to school. However, she believes the pandemic has allowed every stakeholder of education to reimagine what education might look like in the future. There's been this idea for the last century that schooling has lacked innovation. This pandemic, labeled the biggest ed tech experiment in history, has allowed people to imagine a different style of learning, uh, teaching and learning, and a different way to provide schooling, says Hogan. Because the influences on schools, teachers, and students from these new players is likely to persist for some time during this transition, we need to be aware of the level of public education sector dependence on private technology infrastructures so we know who is profiting from our children and what sort of regulations are needed for data protection, privacy, and consent to ensure student data is not exploited, says Hogan. We need to understand who has ownership and control, not only of data, but of curriculum and the way our public schools are run. Well, thank you very much, Oliver. Wasn't that interesting? Uh, Mr Murdoch and uh, Mr Morrison uh, allegedly have been prepared to take on Facebook and uh, tell us that they've won, yeah. and Google and so on, on the business of the news. I wonder if Mr Murdoch would be prepared to uh, do something about our educa the education of our children. Um, we certainly need to uh, monitor what is happening with these big companies. Absolutely. I don't think data mining and algorithms should come into the educational spectrum at all. I don't think that um, it's ethical, and I think that we need to make sure that everything is out in the open, that we have a plan, and absolutely that we're monitoring exactly what's happening. Well, here at the Dogs, we can at least try to keep you informed about these developments and uh, complain about them. But we'll have a bit of a break now and then Dale's got something to tell you. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win folks we will succeed 
Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids, strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Welcome back to the Dogs Program on 3CR. We are defending government schools and exploring a few ideas down here. And Dale has something to tell us about um, more school funding. Thank you, Madeline. Yes, I've got an article by Trevor Cobalt here that was uh, released on International Women's Day. More school funding means better student outcomes. I knew it does, it, doesn't it? Well, I mean, the Conservatives would argue, oh, money doesn't change anything. We've been throwing money at the problem all this time. It's like, well, no, if money didn't mean anything, you wouldn't be vying for so much government funding. But anyway, back to the facts. Exactly. Because, because lots of um, studies have been done and here's, here's the outcome of those studies. Uh, a new analysis of major studies of the relationship between school expenditure and student outcomes provides conclusive evidence that increased expenditure leads to higher test scores, high school graduation and tertiary entrance. The impacts are much larger for low income than for high income students. So those students at the lower end of the economic spectrum benefit more from more funding. The, the study published last month by the US National Bureau of Economic Research is the most rigorous analysis of key studies to date. It conducted what's called a meta-analysis of 31 studies since 2000 that used sophisticated statistical techniques to estimate the causal effect of increased expenditure on school test scores and educational attainment. Of these 31 studies, 29 found positive impacts of increased school spending on student outcomes. The study says this is compelling evidence that increases in school spending improves student outcomes. It concludes, the pattern of results is statistically incompatible with the notion that money does not matter and provides overwhelming evidence that policies that increase school spending improve student outcomes on average. And the most credible evidence to date is extraordinarily inconsistent with the notion that money does not matter. 
of 24 studies that estimate the effect of school spending uh, on test scores, 22 found a positive effect. All 13 studies that estimated the effect on educational attainment, that's dropout, high school completion or tertiary, tertiary entrance, found a positive effect. And three studies that examined the effect of school spending on adult earnings also found a positive effect. So we're talking about creating citizens of a society that are going to be, as um, the neoliberals would have it, citizens who will contribute more to a society by having these uh, better Mm. outcomes. You know, adult earnings are also found to have a positive effect. Okay. Yeah, I I feel like definitely when when a student is supported in their passion, they they will succeed. And we need to be supporting those passions so that they can succeed. Well, that's that whole discussion that we had with Mick Lawrence about the changing the way that children, especially in Australia, perceive education on a whole. <laughs> Having this standardised testing just reinforced negatively reinforces to students that, oh, I'm no good at this, I'm no good at that. When yeah. if we are able to, it to be, as you say, more flexible around getting students passionate and engaged, then obviously the way they look at education won't be so daunting so they can perceive themselves as as students and as interested in education instead of looking at education like it's something for other people. Okay. Yeah, and, and being perceived as a valuable member of society, you know. Yeah. They think that society is this box and we keep trying to fit them into this box and it shouldn't be a box that we're trying to fit into. Mm. Circle. We have a lot of pro- issues with um, a culture around education in Australia. But back to the article. Uh, the pooled uh, meta-analytic estimates estimate indicates, on average, that a US $1,000 increase in funding per student over four years increases test scores by 1.9 percentage points, high school graduation by 2.1 percentage points and tertiary participation by 3.9 percentage points. The impacts for low-income students were similar but much smaller for non-low-income students at 0.6 percentage point increase in high school graduation and a 1% point increase in tertiary participation. So rich kids who already have these advantages, throwing money at them, it makes very little difference. But if you're throwing it at schools with low SES or socioeconomic status, then it's making these marked differences to whether the kids then go on to university. The study Mm -hmm. suggests that the larger effects for low-income students is not just due to lower-income students receiving larger increases in spending, but also likely indicates higher responsiveness to the same increase in spending by less economically advantaged students compared to more more advantaged students. Another key result of the study is that the effect of spending increases is similar across a wide range of baseline spending levels. It found no evidence that the impact of spending increases is less at higher baseline levels. The impact was similar over a baseline spending range of US $8,000 to $20,000 per student. This finding contradicts claims that the level of school spending in countries such as the USA and Australia is so high that there would be little impact of further increases in expenditure. 
The study also compared the effects of increases in recurrent and capital expenditure after allowing for the difference in time for capital spending to have an effect. It found that capital spending takes five to six years to have an impact on student outcomes and that the effects are similar to recurrent school spending. The study provides conclusive evidence of the positive effect of increasing expenditure on schools, a policy that increases per pupil spending $1,000 for at least four years will lead to positive test score impacts over 92% of the time and positive educational attainment impacts more than 99% of the time. And, you know, I think that that says it all, positive educational attainment impacts. Not so much interested in the test scores because, you know, as we've seen, standardised testing isn't necessarily a positive way to educate people. As Puzzy Sabo says, testing is a is a, a great servant but a terrible master. Yeah, I found that the expenditure on capital was also influential because if a school is run down, the children have to accept that that is what their betters think of them. Exactly. When there is rain coming through the ceiling and they're in hot boxes in the summer and cold places in the winter, that is what the adults of the society think they're worth. Whereas if they have a beautiful school, then they get the message very quickly that they too are worth something. And also it, it feeds into their belief that not only is that what the adults of society think of them, but also what the adults of the society think about education. And so yeah. why on yeah. earth, why on earth would, it, would a child get excited about education when it sees that a government apparatus itself has no regard for the education of all, all students. It's interesting, when I was having a chat to Mick Lawrence, he was saying that um, when he got to talk to students in Finland about their education, there was, as, as teenagers, you know, there is that normal tendency to want to rebel, but at no point in time did they ever perceive the idea of not proceeding with their education as part of that rebellion. It was just taken for granted that education is something that helps us grow, helps us learn, gives us insight into how a society works. You know, um, so when I rebel against my parents, I'm not going to do it by dropping out of school. That's just not an option. It's a real, it's a really, it's a real change in uh, how students perceive education. And, uh, you know, if only we could get that change here. Also how they perceive themselves. I feel like in Australia, when you, let's say you go to a privileged private school and you know that there are other schools that don't have any funding or have less funding, I've, I can, I've seen it before. These children look down on those other children that go to an underprivileged school and it further creates that class divide that is not necessary. It's the new racial segregation. As um, Jean discussed uh, a couple of weeks ago, they're not allowed to segregate on race lines anymore, but they certainly can segregate on class lines, which does then translate into race. Absolutely. It has an impact. This has been happening in the south of America, uh, not gradually, but very, very uh, definitely uh, in the old Confederate states. Uh, there was, after a famous... Supreme Court case, the Brown case, 
uh, this found that they could not segregate blacks from whites. But um, by setting up charter schools and private schools and in various other ways, the white population have resegregated the education, particularly of the southern cities. And that's why there is such an uproar in those places at the moment. So Mr Biden's got a very difficult job. Yeah, it is interesting because uh, it's very difficult to tell uh, both sides of the bipartisan vote in America from each other, really, because it's much like Australia. They are still committed to keeping the system as it is. They don't want to upset the status quo either side. Mm. That's true. Yeah, there's little difference between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to policy. Just as there's yeah. little difference between Labor and yeah. Liberal in Australia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is what we'll be talking about next. We'll just have a quick break and we'll be right back on the dogs. Oh, typical of a man in the Western system. Like, hello, you know, all stories may, may be important, but at the end of the day, Invasion Day, you can't compare that to the First Fleet because Invasion Day was the start of a dispossession, murder, massacres and the total annihilation of some people on a continent that had existed since time memorial. So Scott Morrison, if he really wants to lead this country, he needs to shut his mouth in regards to those comments and really understand that Australia Day cannot be celebrated. It is a day of mourning for our people and they would not celebrate the Holocaust. You know, so I don't understand how that is any different than what our people went through because the genocide continues today. Like, Scott Morrison really needs to take a step back and listen to the voices on the ground because he's really ignorant in my view. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. 
Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program and we're back again. We're going to get quite political now. Uh, we are of the opinion of the dogs that the Lib Labs have failed public education in Australia, that we might be unhappy, very unhappy with the coalition government, but there isn't too much joy coming from the Labor side of politics. No. And Tanya Pivasek uh, has recently uh, written something which is of interest. Tanya Pipitsek, as you all probably know, is the Shadow Minister for Education. She lives in inner city Sydney um, and uh, she actually, I think, sends her children to a Catholic school. But her contribution to a book called Upturn, A Better Normal After COVID-19, is entitled Lessons Learned Education in Recovery. Now, uh, People might be very interested in this to see exactly where the Labor Party's at with their policy uh, in the recovery. But um, Chris Bonner has written a critique of what she has to say. And Maddie and Oliver and Sol and Dale will uh, fill us in on what Chris Bonner has to say about Tanya Pibasek. Over to you, Maddie. I will gladly let the public know what is going on. Thank you, Jane. We won't learn much from the pandemic if we ignore what went before and certainly not if we replicate old and inadequate solutions. Can we do things differently this time around? Is Tanya Plibersek sufficiently open to new solutions or is she just another part of an old and recurring problem? The record of her predecessors doesn't provide grounds for hope. Education ministers and their shadows have been cast in much the same mould. Conservative verging on populist and risk adverse in a portfolio plagued for decades by politics and polemics. Does Plibersek's chapter suggest much will change if Labor forms the next government? She raises many important issues, but recent history shows that even the best ideas can be lost in the transition to government. In opposition, Julia Gillard didn't hold back in her commitment to improving equity in the nation's schools. In government, she delayed establishing the Gonski Review, mm. devoting her first two years to initiatives that resembled some of the Howard government's efforts. Mm. The Age editorialised in 2008 that they couldn't see much difference between Julia Gillard and her predecessor, Julie Bishop. And you might remember that the, the major part of the Gonski money was put off until uh, well into the mm. uh, teens, I think to 19, to 2017. And, of course, by then the coalition government was in power and we never saw a penny of it. Mm. That was Gillard. Yeah. And also that commitment that um, Gonski would not take a dollar away from any school, having that, having made that commitment just 
further legislated and entrenched the overfunding of private schools. Mm. That's because the Labor Party are not prepared to take on the church school interests. Exactly. Mm. They haven't been prepared to do it since 1964 and that's why we're in the position we are now in. That's right. In fairness, Gillard was to later deliver some of what Gonski recommended, alas, at a time of enormous political turmoil. And no one can forget the Abbott and Pine commitment to implementing Gonski a commitment that disappeared within months. In her chapter, Plibersek repeats what we've long been told about problems in school education. Poor student outcomes, the gaps between the least and most advantaged, the importance of the basics in, and the early years of learning, the need for quality teachers and quality local schools. Plibersek's commitment to closing the learning gaps is strongly felt and expressed. But in 2021, such a commitment is hardly new. Pursuing equity in schooling has become very mainstream, even if successive governments and ministers have failed to deliver. Well, uh, Oliver will continue for us. Over to you, Oliver. Many of Plibersek's priorities amount to an acknowledgement of, of this failure. She doesn't find much to celebrate other than what we know much more today about schools something apparently due to Labor's NAPLAN and MySchool. We can better target need, devise solutions and achieve improvement. So why aren't we seeing better policy to deal with long-standing and worsening problems? Like those who have gone before, Plibersek often seems content to restate the problems and recycle some cliches. She claims that the most important ingredient in any recipe for success is the teacher. That isn't new. Julie Bishop, Julie Bishop long ago told us that after parents, teachers are the single most important factor in a child's educational outcomes. Gillard went further to parade a particular names of exemplary principles, teachers and schools, an oblique name and celebrate and shame the rest strategy that didn't work. But is the teacher the most important ingredient? Most of us can recall a teacher who made a significant difference to our lives. And any teacher who believes they can't make a difference is in the wrong profession. But collectively, the impact of teachers on student achievement is far less than is commonly claimed. In broad terms, the socioeconomic status of Australian families makes the greatest contribution to student achievement, followed by the SES of the school itself, substantially created by which its students it enrolls. Policies around schools and classrooms make up around one third, and even this includes factors such as school organization and leadership, curriculum, resources, teacher training, quality and distribution. Over to you, Sol. Thank you, Ollie. Unlike a decade ago, many of Plibersek's statements and suggestions are seriously challenged by what we know now. The problem is not the policy ideas she raises. It's just that she hasn't sufficiently explored what lies beneath. The impact of the teacher and the school on student achievement seems to be reducing. Following earlier work, research underway using data from my school, Labor's celebrated creation, shows our equity problem is worsening. It is the socio-educational status of students, even ahead of the work of schools, that is having an increasing impact on student achievement. Which students are enrolled where is increasingly defining the differences between schools. Yes, Plibersek refreshingly writes about how my school data improves what we know about schools, but perhaps she should pay closer attention to everything the data tells. 
None of this negates the worth of her policy priorities. It just renders them inadequate in the absence of serious efforts to address the other things affecting school achievement. Plibersek laments the fact that Australia now has one of the biggest gaps between least and most advantaged students in the developed world, and COVID-19 has made it worse. But the gaps were widening well before the pandemic, and will resume when COVID is behind us. Mm. Got the concentration of advantage and disadvantage at either SES end of schooling in Australia is well researched, including by the OECD. It also shows up in various measures of student achievement, including the highest school certificate, HSC, in New South Wales. The distribution of high achievers and or high scores has, over time, increasingly favoured higher SES, that's socially economic status, schools, urban over rural schools and non-government over government schools. Politicians don't need to be at the cutting edge of research to know that there are deeper problems that challenge simplistic solutions but they do need to join the dots. Plibersek mentions almost as an afterthought that she supports school choice. That's no surprise. Choice is like parenthood. Everyone believes in it. But there is much more to school choice as it operates in Australia. Not everybody believes in school choice. (laughs) Some people like the dogs believe in students having a choice. Absolutely. And there is a difference between parental choice and student choice. A big difference. 100%. In its current form, it is widening the very achievement gap she wants to close. The data clearly shows in exercising choice, parents shift their children from lower into higher SES schools. This is not a statement for or against parents or choice. It's just what happens. But unlike in many countries, This process is supported by enrolment processes, local networks and rumour mills, public and private funding and its distribution, transport, school specialisations and much more. The resulting differences between our schools on the basis of family advantage, school size, curriculum, diversity, teacher experience and the density of achieving students is obvious. It can be measured. It's aggregating struggle in our most disadvantaged schools and as a consequence, suppressing the overall levels of school achievement. Like so many others, Plibersek knows that improving education is one of the surest ways of turning around our frightening falls in productivity and insipid growth. Sorry, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Now over to you, Dale. Thank you. And I'll just finish off uh, with Chris Bonner saying, the solutions lie in creating a broad constituency to rethink the purpose of schools and how we can reconcile choice with equity. Other countries have done it. Why can't we? There is a raft of policy alternatives flagged by the OECD. We seem to have accepted the verdict of international testing on Australia's school performance, but we shy away from the structural and policy changes that point to a way out of the most wicked of problems. So on so many occasions, Plibersek has proven to be a breath of fresh air and more than willing to tackle difficult issues, but she has much further to go if she's to make a difference in education. And that's that's the issue, isn't it? The, they, the politicians talk a good talk when they're not in office. As soon as they're in they're office. They're not, not prepared to take on 
the powerful and the wealthy and the privileges they want for their children. That's it. Where do they get their money from? Well, they're quite, we're quite happy to let them spend their money, but not our money. That's right. <laughs> not, that's right. Not the Treasury's money. Well, that, I think that's all we've got time for. Uh, you've been listening to the dogs. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can check out our website at www.adogs.info. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, here ten years dead. I never died, says he, I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead, says Joe. Says, killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes. Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.